What's up, people? What is up? What is up? What is up? I am super happy to be back for the Word episode 15. Are we on 50? Is this 15? This is number 15. All right, this is beautiful stuff. I'm excited to be back. As many of you have noticed, we took a uh, a little sabbatical. We took a week off, or because we just every two weeks we took a uh, two weeks off, I guess. We missed the last Thursday. Let's put it that way. Um, I was in inbound at HubSpot speaking and. We just felt it was just better take a break than try to mess up the schedule, move it all around, and screw it all up. So we are back. Are we back, Kiki? We are back and ready to go, ready to rock. Yes, we are back. And I kind of like this, too, because we got a big-time guest today, or guests today, and a big-time topic. So having a little uh, little down time in between this one to come back with a big boom, I guess, is the way to do it. So I'm down with that. I'm happy with that. Uh, we got a really good guest today. Instead of guests today, I like the topic, don't we, Keith? We do. We do. It's um, it's timely. It's certainly timely because you guys are this uh, group. CEB is pretty famous for for a little a little book known as the Challenger Sales. So they just dropped a new one that we they are did. about to talk about. They did just drop a new one, so I'm very happy with that. Um, here's a picture of Peeps, the Challenger customer, and we're going to get more into that in a second. But um, all right, what do we got for house cleaning stuff before we get going? Um, what do we got? Do we have anything, Keek? Do we have anything? We have. Uh, well, if you're not able to catch this live, just know that you're able to catch it on YouTube, on a Sales Guy channel, uh, iTunes podcast, on our website. It's everywhere. So um, if you aren't able to make it today, don't fret. You're able to see it uh, on your time. Truth, truth. Now, the funny part about that, anybody who can't see today didn't just hear that, so they don't know what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tweet it. Yes, there you go. Uh, speaking of tweeting, folks, the hashtag is still, still jump on it. Ask your questions. Look, this, this is a show that you do not want to sit quietly and listen to. You have a chance to talk to, to ping, to engage, to get up in their grill and talk to the authors. This is as good as it gets. This is social at its finest. Do not let this opportunity go by. So if you're sitting there watching this and listening to the authors, have your Twitter uh, account up and get your fingers warmed up and get ready to fire off the questions because this is when you actually want to get the questions too because this shit is kind of complex. I, I, I read the book and it, there's a lot in here and there's a lot of concepts and we're going to dig into them. So don't rely just on me to make you feel all warm and fuzzy and get this shit going. Get your own questions out because the boys will ask them. Uh, Kiki will be paying attention to them and we'll get them out. So hashtag sales jolt. Um, let me see what else. Uh, I can't think of anything else, Kiki. Are we going we gonna to just jump into this one today? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks, we're not going to have a, uh, a, a video or a, what do we call them, Kiki? I'm having a hard time today. So what happens when I take two weeks off? <laughs> Well, we usually have a visual, but we're just going to catch and see on this day. Yes, yeah, so we're going to cut to it today. We're going to bring the boys in. So so today we've got Pat Spenner and Nick Toman. They're the co-authors of the Challenger customer. Now, for those of you who remember the Challenger sale, you'll this will sound familiar. This is new research from the customer vantage point. So the Challenger sale did some work to say, okay, 
what is the best type of salesperson? What do they do differently? And we, we, if those of you remember, it was teach, tailor, and take control, and the idea that the best salesperson challenged the customer, and the less than ideal customer focused on the relationships. That whole relationship argument created a firestorm. I loved it, but it created a firestorm. Well, I think in some areas it's going to create a firestorm too. So let me bring in Pat Spenner and Nick Toman. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, Pat. Thanks, Peter. I think you're muted, Pat. Um, up top. Okay. Go ahead, Nick. Take it away. Yes, thanks, Tina. Thanks for having us. I'll speak for Pat since he's uh, he's still muted. I got it. He, uh, he's I got it. Technology deficient, so uh, <laughs> let me excuse him. Yes, I was born in the '70s. Give me a break. <laughs> Dude, you're killing me. I was born in the '60s. Excuse Trump. Oh no. Yes, my man. Touche. Yes. Touche. Yeah, right. There you go. Hey, um, I got to give some love to Nick, brother. I'm liking what's on the ears. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to come out with a big dance and I'm going to have a Red Bull, but, you know, Keenan, you, you already started it, so I thought, well, at least I can start with the uh, the headphones and just let you have your thing. I love it, man. My boy's wearing beats. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling the vibe, baby. It's going to be good. I'm feeling the vibe. And red flag, Keenan. Say what? Beats and red red plaid on a uh, pad over there. So oh, that's right. Look, you got a little red plaid on Pat. I mean, bringing it, gentlemen. Just know, know your audience. They say, well done, well done, well done. So, gentlemen, I'll tell you what. Why don't each of you take two minutes to to tell us either about you, what pumps you up about the book, what you're going to do this weekend, but just just introduce yourselves in any creative way that you want to get the audience engaged. Ooh, I'll go first. I'm Pat Spenner. I run strategic initiatives here at CEB in our marketing practice, so that means I do product development and things like that. But I oversaw the Marketing Leadership Council for about five years, and that's the team that did all the research on the marketing side of this book, Keenan. And so uh, I'm really plugged into that, really excited to be here today, so thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for jumping on. Nick, what about you, brother? Yeah, so I oversee the sales practice at CEB, so um, a lot of you will know the challenger sale and sort of all of the research related to challenger sale. Um, those are the efforts that, that I run broadly here for us. Um, also had a chance to do some work in the customer service space, so uh, a few of the listeners might know our, our work in that space, the effortless experience. Um, and if anybody has questions on customer service related stuff too, happy to answer some of those questions, but hopefully we spend the bulk of our time on sales and marketing and some of the, the great new research that we just completed. Perfect. Let's do that. Let's not even waste any more time. So guys, uh, this book is, my first observation is this book is complex. Okay, so the the from an execution perspective, right? When I started reading this, I'm like, okay, all this makes sense, right? But with all due respect, the average sales guy, how does the average sales guy attack this? So I want each of you to take a second to, to sort of give me your thirty thousand foot view about why this matters. <laughs> why this we, we we joke, Keenan. We we love to say it's it's got a dense nougaty center. Uh, it's sort of a, it's one of those business books that just keeps going. You know, most it's sort of the pop in the beginning, and uh, and that's all the good stuff. This one does keep going. So to your point, it is dense. But if I could boil it down to the, the core argument, I'll be curious what Pat says if, if he agrees or disagrees with this. But the core argument of this is um, buying is hard. Uh, buying is getting harder for the customer. Uh, the customer has to deal with a whole lot of crap internally to get something done. Um, the best way that a sales team 
can approach that customer who's confused and overwhelmed and working through all this consensus is to find the person inside the customer organization who can cut through all that BS, help rally the team, and then move the deal forward. And there's a variety of ways you've got to approach that person, and we go into a lot of detail around the right ways to approach that person. But this really is about finding that right person inside the customer organization. And it's not your traditional advocate. It's not your traditional friendly contact. This person's got teeth. This person wants a lot more out of the relationship. Um, but if you find that person, engage that person the right way, that that is winning more than half the battle. So that that's, that's the book in a nutshell, I'd say. And I, I know Pat probably has a few things to add to that. Yeah, I think it's uh, that's the main point. It's about how you wrap your sales and marketing efforts around that bogey of going after the challenger customer, as we call it, the mobilizer in the book. So I'm sure we're going to dive into a lot more detail on that. But that's a top-line story, Keenan. So, so why is buying so hard? Like, wh what has changed? Because I think I, I like your point. In order for this rest of this conversation to be worth a rat's ass, the listeners have to understand that buying has changed. When we say the buying, you mean the customer, the people I'm reaching out to, right? The person's buying your solution. So if buying has become harder, why has it become harder? Yeah. Let me drop. Go ahead, go ahead, Pat. Go, for, go me, ahead, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm about to drop some data on you. I'm going <laughs> to drop three numbers on you. 57%, 5.4%, and 37%. So check this out. So. According to our research, and this is deep research, studying thousands of B2B buyers, surveying them directly, asking them about how they go about buying today, on average, those buyers, those buying groups, are 57% of the way through the purchase before they are meaningfully engaging supplier sales reps. Okay, So they're delaying contact as long as they can, because they can learn on their own. Now, if you go into that 57%, if you dive into that and really study what those customers are doing in that 57%, there's a 5.4 buying group in that 57% that's trying to figure out what's the nature of the problem that they're facing and what's the nature of the solution. They're just trying to agree on or come to some kind of consensus on what the problem and the solution are. And the average size of that group today is 5.4 different stakeholders. Okay, So that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. They're not even all cooks, right? You got a bunch of different dogs and cats and fish in there who have to come to consensus on the problem and the solution in that 57%. Third figure is 37%. When you ask those customers where the peak point of dysfunction or an inability to reach consensus happens in the purchase process, it happens at 37% of the way through the purchase. So now you put all those numbers together and you realize that deals fall apart before they even get started and before a sales rep can even get in to start to knit together the consensus that commercial teams have traditionally relied on sales reps to go and do. So now that, that changes the whole commercial dynamic and how marketing and sales need to work very differently individually and together to help those buying groups reach some kind of consensus early in the deal and often at arm's length before a sales rep is even involved. Okay, so that was some good data, a good data dump. So I'm going to I'm going to push this out a little further. I'm going to toss this to you, Nick, right? Because I'm starting to feel you too. I could be wrong, but I'm feeling Patrick's my data analytical, and and Nick's more my emote responsive, right? So I'm going to toss this shit to that. All that's fantastic. Why? What has happened in the business world? What has happened in the world that we are moving to a place where the decision process is becoming more difficult, takes more people? Uh, et cetera. What's happening, Nick? 
Yeah, so if, if there's one thing we're going to point to, it's, it's the fact that there's more information out there. And if there's one single thing that's happening, it's more information. Um, and what's happening, I mean, to Pat's point, uh, we have more information at our disposal so the customer can go out there and learn. Um, more information also means that the stakes are bigger within a purchase. People understand that a purchase that they're going to make for their business has bigger implications for that business. So what are they going to do? They're going to pull in more people. Okay, well, now this touches HR, but it also touches IT. Maybe it touches their marketing team. Maybe it touches someone in back office or operations, right? They're going to start to pull those people into the deal and into the consideration. More stakeholders into the picture, right? As those other stakeholders come to the table, they bring their own information. They bring their own perspectives, right? Suddenly, that group shows up and starts to involve suppliers. And what do suppliers do? They start to bring their own information, their own perspectives. So you get this sort of compounding effect of all this information. It literally makes your head want to explode. In fact, we often joke, it's, it's amazing that anything gets decided upon in corporate, you know, uh, uh, in any corporation anywhere today, right? There's just so many options, so much information, so many different directions one could go. And that's really what this, this book gets to the heart of, is how do you cut through all of that with a really clear message, with a really clear focus, and bring that buying group that, to Pat's point, it's kind of like cats, dogs, bicycles, fish. God knows what you're trying to bring together. <laughs> Sounds, like together Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. It kind of is. The <laughs> illustrations are really similar, in fact. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm going to take a deep dive real quick, and I'm going to pop us back. I'm not going to stick too far in this rat hole. One of your numbers was 56% of buyers are further through the sales process. They're taking more time to engage with the salesperson. I love it. I wrote a post the other day that said that's the biggest waste of time statistic because the really good salespeople get less than 80%, I mean less than 20% of their sales, I'm just pulling that number out of the sky talking to data guys, from buyers who've chosen to buy. They create demand. They make the calls, they engage with people, and they're able to create demand early in the process. If they're trying to sell and make their quota by finding those people who are already realize they have a problem, they're never going to make quota. Yep. So does, does your does your research hold up as well with those with those salespeople, those sales processes where I was first in and I engaged them and I showed them they had a problem, made them realize, oh shit, I need to start looking at this. Is yeah. it the same? Yeah, and Keenan, I think we both agree with you. In fact, we, we did a lot of research around what leading salespeople do, and that's that's kind of, let me qualify that, what leading salespeople do, right? And what leading salespeople, we're talking about that top 20% of sellers out there, and what they do is they really embrace what we would call more of like a micro-marketing type of mindset, where they are in an account early, where they are ginning up the demand, where the buyer doesn't even realize there's a problem yet. Um, and I think we all have to be focused on creating those opportunities, and I think that's that's where a lot of, a lot of, our work around this idea of insight selling comes into play is how can I bring an insight to get the customer off the couch and make them realize, hey, my business could be operating a hell of a lot better. Um, but I think the reality is that that's your leading behavior. And for most folks, you know, most folks are very content to say, hey, let the RFP come to me. Hey, we're in the consideration set. High fives. Let's go get our best pitch together and show up and throw up. And I think that's the reality. And what we're trying to promote is, is look, we all do need to be thinking about what happens upstream in that in that sale. But it's not just about showing up and having any any opinion or showing up and having a great product pitch to get the customer off the couch. You really have to, to begin to open up the dialogue about the customer's business and show them something that they've overlooked within their business. And that's the compelling event that does get them off the couch. And we spend a heck of a lot of time in the book going into great detail around how is it you get them off the couch in the first place? What's the thing you can do to create that jolt inside the customer organization? Do you like that, Keenan, jolt? 
Um, yeah, but you create that goal inside the customer organization, right? And, and and that becomes that that event. And what's interesting is when you start to create those events, those jolts inside the organization, you can begin to see who attaches to that idea. Who's the one who's going to stick their neck out internally? Who's the one who's going to pound the table and say, "Hey, fellows, we got to we got to pay attention here. We got to do something different with our business. Not buy something different. We got to do something different with our business." And that's that's the real I think the real secret ingredient here is is we've got to focus on helping the customer do something different with the business. I don't know, Pat, if you'd have anything to add to that, but uh, that's kind of the, the simplest ver version of it I can give. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And there's a little bit of a head fake here, right? Because um, for for marketers in particular, because the um, the mobilizer, these challenger customers inside the organization, they happen to be very drawn to those kind of jolty moments, reframing the way that they think about their business to sort of make the the business case to move in a very different direction to to drive change. Um, those mobilizers or challenger customers, they tend to be very precious with their time, let's say. They're very resistant to engaging with any old supplier content, your typical supplier content out there. And so marketers often will look at their dashboard and how many downloads and clicks and so on their content's getting. But you know what? Those clicks are often coming not from mobilizers but from talkers people who aren't going to be in the, the business of driving change in the organization. They're not going to be able to drive consensus around that course of change. And so marketing's got to really revisit the way that it thinks about content and coming up with those insights um, with the sales partners to help engage those mobilizers early and jolt them off the couch. All right, true. So, so this is a good segue. You keep referencing the mobilizer. There are seven types of of customers, and I like how you guys did this, and I'm going to throw you a little feedback, it's nothing you can change now, but I think you guys undersold the seven types of custom, uh, customer buyers, what do you call them, customer profiles, or is that what you yeah. call them, right, because yeah, you, yeah. you didn't get to them until a little later, and, and like with the challenger sale, the minute you catalog them, it brings it to life. So I think you guys should have put that earlier in the book and, and sold it harder in the beginning. But like chapter two wasn't early enough, Keenan? No, I think it should have been right out of the gate. But anyways, that's hey, a whole hey, story. Hey Pat, you know what I think? I think Keenan's gonna help us write the next book. I think so. Yeah, that's great. Um, so so talk tell everybody, Patrick, t walk us through the seven types, give us the descriptions. If you guys want to tag team that, I don't care, but I want to get these on the table. I know it may take a few minutes, but people listen up. This is really, 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 and I will say one more time, really important. They've categorized, for lack of a better word, or created seven profiles of distinct different buyer profiles. You want to know who the frick you're talking to, so listen up. This is good. Go for it, Patrick. Nick, I'm, I'm actually, Nick should have the honor of this, because Nick was the chief architect of this research, of that particular research, Keenan, so I'm going to flip it to Nick. Yeah. Oh, so, so, uh, so yeah. Now I'll be the data guy. Okay, Keenan. We'll just flip roles here. Um, so let me adjust my glasses, and we'll go into detail. Uh, so yeah, we found seven different types. Now, what's really interesting? I'm gonna tell everybody how we found them because it's actually fascinating how you find these people. Because it wasn't like we said, hey, there must be seven of them. Yeah, we'll roughly put these together and call it good enough. Um, what we did was we went out there and we tested a whole bunch of different buying behaviors. We said um, we interviewed, or, or rather, we surveyed 
um, thousands of different stakeholders inside of B2B purchases and said, hey, uh, how do you tend to behave? What are your dominant kind of personality traits? How do you tend to engage with suppliers? Um, how do you tend to do your research? How do you tend to talk to your team? Um, what actions do you take? How willing are you to stick your neck out there if you believe in something? So we tested a whole bunch of different things. And, and when we went out and tested all that, what we found was the data came back and said, look, there's roughly seven groupings of people out there. And the way that we kind of get at the groupings, I love, I love to explain how we did it, because it's really important people understand where this data comes from. Um, the analogy I use is, is one from the different climates around the world. I know this sounds totally like a non sequitur, but it helps you understand where we got the data from. So if I say to you, sandy, hot, cactus, um, cold at night, you're going to say desert, of course, because those things naturally kind of coexist together. Well, we did the same thing with all these different personality traits and how people act inside a sale, and we looked for ways that those sort of naturally glom together, and that's how we came up with the seven profiles. And what's cool is when you have seven profiles, then you can begin to see, well, who's the better type of profile to go after? So that's exactly how we did it. So the seven profiles, yeah. um, in no particular order, here they are. The first is the go-getter. Um, the go-getter is uh, kind of the person that really is getting up, getting after them. Uh, they're the person that tells the team, hey, guys, we got to get after this. They're going to will their way to victory. Um, you know, and sometimes they're taking, taking down folks uh, along the path, but, hey, they're going to get it done. And that's the go-getter. Uh, the second is somebody we call the skeptic. Now, the skeptic uh, is someone who is just that. They're very skeptical. They ask really hard questions. They're tough to engage. They're going to push back a lot. Um, in many cases, it's not because they don't believe you, but they're really trying to understand. They're trying to test you know, the validity of your idea. Um, they're trying to just make sure you're serious about the thing you're talking about. right? Um, the third is the teacher. And the teacher we kind of refer to as the visionary of the group. They're the person with kind of the big ideas. They love to get up at the podium in front of their, um, their peers and kind of uh, tell them how they see the world. And, and really, they paint in broad brushstrokes of what they think right answer is. Okay, So more the visionary, more the luminary um, of the group. Next, we have the climber. And the climber is just as they sound. They're the person that is all about themselves and trying to get ahead within the organization. Um, uh, they're going to steamroll others if they have to. They want to make sure that they're the one getting their name out there, getting credit for whatever projects are happening, and all in the sake of getting promoted, getting a bigger bonus, what have you. Okay? Um, next, we have uh, the guide. And the guide is, is one of my favorites because the guide is sort of the person that you're a little uncomfortable talking to the guy. They're telling you things about your about their business that they probably shouldn't be telling you. Um, this can get into some tricky waters with sort of ethics out there in business today. But they're the person telling you about, you know, hey, the guy sitting next to me, you know, in the office next to me is getting fired next week. Um, you should probably know about that. Uh, and it's like, no, I, I probably I probably really shouldn't know about that. How do you even know about that? Um, so that's the guy. Uh, and next we have. Uh, I think so. We got talker. Uh, I'm sorry. We got the the guide, uh, the climber. Oh, and then we have um, uh, the you friend. You talk about the yeah, and you talk about the blocker either. That little well, page. the blocker we're going to get to because the blocker is a special oh. category. <laughs> so the, the the talker, or I'm sorry, the friend is just that. They're friendly. They're accessible. They're always willing to have lunch. Um, what's really interesting about about the friend, and we can talk a little bit more about kind of how this breaks down according to different levels of of people inside an organization. There's a lot of senior decision-maker friends, highly accessible people that would love to talk to you, um, as we'll explore in a minute. The friend isn't exactly the best stakeholder for you, um, but they're very willing to take a sales call. And then finally, the last one is the blockers, as you just said, Keenan, and the blocker how is... Uh, how come we don't call them the bitch? 
Uh, look, Keenan, that's part of the reason we're going to bring you on the team for the next book. Our language <laughs> isn't colorful enough. Um, but, but in reality, that's kind of what they are. And, and actually, the hard part is you, you will struggle to make them your bitch because they're, they're entrenched in their beliefs. They are really, really all about the status quo. I mean, if there's one thing that the blocker embraces, it's status quo. We aren't touching things. We're in implementation mode. Um, uh, things are good enough. We don't need to mess with things right now. We've got to focus elsewhere. And that's, that's the typical blocker. And, and there's a variety of fun ways you can kind of take out the blocker that we talk about in the book, really practical ways. And I'm happy to answer questions on it. So that's, that's the seven stakeholders. Um, but what we found and what's most interesting is three of those stakeholders win and are the mobilizers. And three of those stakeholders essentially lose and are the people you really don't want to hit your, your, your wagon to. Um, so the three that win were the teacher, the skeptic, and the go-getter. So let's set this up. up. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Keenan. This is really good. No, I like where you're going here. So before you go out, go out with this, because this is really important, I think, the people that win aren't who we think win, and it's and just like your last book, um, goes against conventional wisdom, correct? Oh, that, I mean, you, you just set me up beautifully, right? So That's my job, baby. Absolutely. I mean, it, the three that win, so that mobilizers was what we call them collectively, but that's the go-getter, the skeptic, and the teacher. Turns out those three, when they latch onto an idea and take it to their peers, their peers listen. Their peers take them seriously. These are the people who come up with those great ideas, and everybody sort of goes, "Yeah, what, what he said, that's great." Uh, the yeah, other, no, when I was when I was reading this book, I got I got to put myself out there. When I was reading the book, and you and you guys. Who would I try to attack? And I, I, I failed a little. I got two out of the three. Yeah. So so I wasn't you know I, I wasn't too bad, but I missed one. I, I should have circled it. But I think I said I went after the go getter. Um, who did I say I went after? Oh no, I can't remember. I said the go getter. The I think I picked the teacher over yeah. skeptic. The skeptic. I think the is skeptic what I, is a tricky one. Yeah, mm -hmm. the skeptic's a trickiest one. That's the one that throws people off all the time. And, and, and kind of he, here's why. So if we think first about the, the other three who don't win, right, the guide, um, the, the climber, and the, the friend, um, we call those three together talkers mm -hmm. because that's what they're good at. They're great at talking. And here's, the, here's where it gets tricky is those people are more than happy to take a sales call. They're more than happy to engage with the supplier. They're more than happy to back a supplier. Problem is, the minute they go back to their peers and say, "Hey guys, here's what we got to do," and the buying group says, "You know, oh, here's Joe, he's talking it up again," or "Here's Charlie trying to climb the ladder again," instantly they, they that person has no credibility and the idea begins to fall apart. Versus if a skeptic comes into the room and says, "Hey guys," uh, and we all we all know Jill's a skeptic, right? Jill's probably pressure test the hell out of this thing, and she says, "Here's what I think we need to do with the business." People are suddenly going to listen. And so, you know, we often joke that that um, engaging a mobilizer for a salesperson, it is it is like walking the gauntlet. It is a tough conversation, it's a difficult conversation because this person's looking for an idea they can put their their weight behind. They're looking to believe in something and then take it back to their colleagues. They're going to screen it beforehand. Versus a talker who's going to engage, you're going to seem really excited. They're probably not going to ask too many hard questions. They're just going to assume that they understand what you're talking about and begin to take that back to their colleagues, and it's going to quickly wither on the vine and die. And that's the real key difference here between those mobilizers and those talkers. All right, so Patrick, how have tr traditional salespeople been doing it, and how do they make the turn? Well, so the first observation for traditional sales folks is that, like, guess who they naturally tend to target between mobilizers and talkers? Talkers, 
right? Because that's that. There's not a lot of tension in that conversation. That's an easy conversation to schedule. It's an easy conversation to have. You can get the sense of checking the box in your sales process. Oh, yep, had a follow-up conversation with that guy, and that gives the the illusion of progress in a sales process. So the talkers are the, the talkers again are the guide, the climber, and the friend. Yeah. Okay. okay. So that's what I did. I messed up the I messed up the climber with the teacher. I switched those two. I thought the climber would help move. Okay, so good. The climber, the guide, the friend. They're the talkers. They're the, they're the no-go zone. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so and then your your star sales reps, right? Your top 20 percentile reps, they quickly suss out. If I am I talking am I talking to a talker here? And if I am, maybe I'll use that talker to find my way to who is the true mobilizer here. But those star sales reps very quickly uh, laser in on whether they're got a talker or or a mobilizer or a blocker, and if they don't have a mobilizer, they'll find their way to a mobilizer and start to engage that mobilizer. So right? how do I do that? So, so you just said the top 20 figure it out, but let's take the other 80%, right? They don't know any better. How, what can they do? Give that. Give these folks who are listening here to go up and say, oh, I know how to go find a mobilizer versus a talker now. What am I looking for? What are the traits? What are the skill sets? What are the actions? Yeah. There's a great tool in the book that um, all credit to, to Nick and the team on the on the sales side here at CEB put together to help sales reps in the moment with very simple litmus test questions figure out am I talking to a climber am I talking to a right a skeptic a teacher who am I talking to I mean Nick you can put more color on that yeah yeah and uh, Keenan I'm sure some of your listeners are poker players and so the way we thought about this tool is is what are the tells right good poker player knows the tells of the other player. So what are the tells as I engage with and talk to different people inside that customer organization? How can I quickly put them through these tells? Um, so you're looking for things that are actually there's four very clear tells. Firstly, this person wants to engage with your insight. When we say an insight, we can talk more about really what we mean with this idea, but um, going in and having something provocative to help that customer understand that they're not thinking about their business the right way. And we aren't looking for somebody to say, no, that's not that interesting. Hey, what's your latest offer? What we're looking for is someone who says, wait a minute, that, that seems interesting, but I got a few questions. And they want to start firstly engaging with, with your idea about their business. Okay? They're going to ask hard questions. And if they don't, walk away. In fact, don't walk away. Run away. right? Because this isn't the person to pursue. So that's the first tell, and that's the most important tell. Now, the second one is they really do talk about we versus me. Okay, this is where you can quickly distinguish, do I have a climber or do I have a mobilizer? Because they're not interested in just me, my part of the business, my area of the business, my opportunity. They're interested in we, us, the greater good. And what's really interesting, we interviewed literally dozens of sales reps. We asked our, our member companies at CEB here, hey, give us access to your top performers, and we talked to them about these people. And they were adamant about that point. They talk about the organization. They don't talk about themselves. So that's the second screen. And the third so, screen... Guys, so if you've got, this made me think of something. If you're working with someone and you're in a, in a particular division or group, let's say you're in IT, and, right, and yep. you know that there are multiple stakeholders that your product or service affects, yep. and the IT person, all he cares about, all she cares about is how it affects their database or how it affects their uh, development environment, and they don't care about anything else, the rest of the organization, let's say marketing, then that's not someone I want to talk to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a nutshell, think about it, right? If they got to go back and then sell the idea internally to the other 4.4 stakeholders, and all they're focused on is just what it means for me and IT, 
they're going to have a hard time selling that. Now, some cases, they might just not know exactly what to say to the other stakeholders, and so they, they, they automatically talk about themselves. This is one of the subtle things you can begin to do is really try to pressure test, is this person interested in that broader business value? And if they are, right, if they understand the implications for their partners in HR, their partners in marketing, and know this is a good idea for the company at large, then you can start to do a little bit of what we call commercial coaching. Okay? In commercial coaching, we go into a lot of detail in the book on what that means, but it's helping that mobilizer who may have never, they may have never tried to pitch something internally and get folks on board, but helping them know what to go do. Hey, here's the people you really need to talk to now at this point. Here's what you need to say. Here's where I can help you and provide some guidance to you. Here's where you're going to have to do it yourself. But your job now, your job is to bring the other 4.4 together. And that's your single biggest mission. And so, yeah, of course, you want them to be motivated to get after it. But you don't want the motivations to be all about themselves. Again, it's about this is the right thing for our enterprise. This is the right thing for our business. This is the right thing for our practice, whatever it is. Um, that's really what they need to denominate the conversation. And if they're not, you got to really, you as a salesperson, need to be the skeptic at that point and really ask yourself, do I have the right person? Good. I'll just mention it real quick. One more litmus test. And this one was the, the, the most important litmus test out of all those interviews we did with those salespeople out there. They said, you got to give them homework. you got to give them homework. And if they don't carry through on the homework, either get me a meeting, share this research, come back with, with some research internally about what's going on. You've got to give them homework. And if they don't come back with that homework, you don't have a mobilizer. And that one, Dude. everybody was emphatic about that one. Dude, one of these days on a side note, we got to go have a beer. I drew a graph about six years ago. And look, I am not a data head. So any, anything I put together is a graph. You'll get it conceptually, but I'm sure it's all fucked up everywhere else. But <laughs> what, I, what I said was I compared the ability to close a deal based on the amount of work the buyer would do. And I argued that earlier in the sales process, it's harder to ask a buyer to do something because they're not, the, the level of work you get from the buyer is lower because they're not as vested. So you get them for a meeting, but you can't ask too much for them. But as you move through the sales cycle and you get close or more through the process, they should be doing a shitload of work. They should be getting you in front of the right people, delivering the information you need, making the connections, giving what you need, and if they're not, you're in trouble. Yeah, and I, right. call, I call that letting the sales process get out of whack. So, dude, mm. if your research show, that is freaking awesome. I'm all pumped up. That's See you again, man. we got to pull you into the next one, oh. and you're just one step ahead of us with everything here. God, <laughs> yeah, but you guys are smarter than me. You can prove the shit. Mine was all anecdotal till today, so hey. holla. But, but, you know, I would actually say, I mean, that, that's part of the value. Look, the data just lets us see what's happening out there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these interviews, when we go in and we do the interviews, and i I, I got to tell you, so I, I mean, it's, it's really, your show can get inappropriate. It's not even remotely appropriate for the show, what we learn in some of those calls, uh, and some of the colorful language from salespeople around the globe. But, but when they come back through and they help us make sense of that data, it's kind of like, here's what we think it's saying. Like, what do you guys think? And, it, and you hear things just like that. And, I mean, that's the reality. This isn't, nothing we publish is, is new. None of this is original, okay? The data just lets us look at the world a bit differently and see what leading salespeople, leading marketing organizations are actually doing. And I think that's an important point that, look, none of this is new. And a lot of people read the book and say, none of it's new per se. Like, I've been thinking this way. Yeah, you might have been, but what about everybody else out there? And so it just lets and us it see. And it gives it a good label. And it gives it a really good label and puts it in the right place. Like, a lot of people need that structure to process the thinking, right? So you guys give it an amazing structure and show people how to do it. Now, which leads me to the next thing then. Talk to me, Patrick, talk to me about teaching and unteaching. I thought this was a really cool part of the book. 
Yeah, this this is a key leverage point in the whole book, right? So if you what and it, and it comes back to what is it that we're trying to engage those customer stakeholders with? And to Nick's earlier point, the mobilizers are the ones who are going to gravitate naturally to the ideas that reframe the way that they think about their own business. And what we found in all of our research on the marketing and the sales side, especially the marketing side, is that there are a whole lot of marketing organizations out there today doing content under the banner of what they'll call thought leadership. Right? And thought leadership tends to be content that is about teaching the customer something new. Hey, here's this new technology. Did you know about this new technology and how it's you know, changing the way that consumers do X, Y, Z, or whatever it might be? But what we found separated um, really smart marketing organizations that are all about engaging mobilizers is they're less about creating thought leadership that teaches the customers something new about something that they didn't know about. And it's much more about unteaching. Unteaching the customer something that they already believe about their business today. So that's you see the wrong. difference there? So that, that, that's, a, that's a crucial difference because when you can unteach a customer, in particular a mobilizer, and this is what mobilizers gravitate to, something that they think about or believe about their business today that's actually wrong, now you've got yes, their attention yes. and they're digging in. And that's what the other thing that it does is it creates um, momentum to move off of the status quo. I mean, let's face it today, right? If you're marketing and selling to mid to large-sized enterprises, just getting those enterprises to move off of the status quo is really hard. So it, um, what we found is that the best organizations have to unteach their customers in order to make the pain of same greater than the pain of change. Because otherwise, yes. what you're going to end up with is um, customers who will consume your content, they'll nod their heads, they'll say, you know what, that was really interesting. But then they'll go back to their day job. Because you know what, change is painful. It's hard, right? You got, oh, you got to go convince a bunch of other people to go on a change path with you? That's hard. you got to stick your neck out. So, so that's where the distinction is between teaching thought leadership and unteaching what we call commercial insight in the book. And that, as it happens, is the dog whistle for mobilizers. If you're trying, that's what appeals to mobilizers out there. The mobilizers have their ears turned to, and I got some big ears here, right? That's what they have their ears <laughs> turned to, and that's what they're gonna. That's what they find. So this, that's what they gravitate to in the marketplace, right? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. This reminds me of a article by the Harvard Business Review about six years ago, seven years ago, called "Provoke Your Customers in a Downturn." Did any of you read this? And it's something that Sybase did. And I, I think if I remember, because it's been a while since I read it, their whole premise is they went out and they challenged how their, their target customers were doing a particular piece of business and the impact of doing it that way. You're shaking your head, Nick. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I do, I do. And it was, it was great work. I think it was Jeffrey Schott, if I remember right. Um, uh, the was sales. this what you're talking about? Is that the type the of concept you're talking runs pretty about? small here. Yeah, and, and so that, that idea, in fact, that idea, um, what's really interesting is our initial research on Challenger, the Challenger sale came out about the same time, and so we got to really compare notes with these guys. Um, and I think they, they, they really thought diligently about that idea of, you know, what are ways to go out and, and kind of proverbially poke your customer in the eye, right? Um, I, I think I think there is a certain amount of, of refinement as we've continued to explore that idea of, of selling with insight and um, trying to understand, and this is this is the critical part where most get it wrong, is is we've seen companies go out there and just poke the customer in the eye um, <laughs> for unprincipled reasons. In fact, we've seen it go dramatically wrong. 
dramatically wrong, and I, I wouldn't share which companies we've seen it go wrong with, but it's happened where you know the sales force gets fired up and says, "Hey, go out and challenge your customers for you know unprincipled reasons." Um, so sellers think, "Oh, yeah, well, I, I know how I can challenge this customer, and I know how I can challenge that customer. I'm going to go do it." Um, what we find is that the the best organizations and the best insights for challenging customers really are, are deeply, deeply grounded in how does the customer currently think about their business today. And as it turns out, when you ask most marketing organizations or most sales enablement teams out there, how do you think about kind of voice of the customer, what most will tell you is we think about where our product set intersects with customer needs. And that's how we think about voice of the customer. And how we, we encourage them to instead think about it is to say, how is the customer, what is the customer trying to do? Right? What are their objectives for their business, and how are they going to do that? Because when you take those elements of how they're going to get after their own business objectives, and you can say, you know what, you've got three of those right, but this one, you're not thinking about it right. Something's changed. Let me show you what's going on there and show you a different approach, particularly an approach that directly leads back to what I, as a supplier, am good at doing that's the most powerful kind of insight. So again, it's grounded in what the customer is doing, right? But showing them a different way they need to be thinking about their own actions and in a way that leads back to us ultimately as the supplier of choice. And those moments, as it sounds, those are hard to create those moments. And it takes a lot of work to do it. And that's why you can't just say, hey, everybody, you know, go out there and figure out your own insights and go poke your customer in the eye the right way. This really does take a team effort. And whether you're a you know, small business owner and trying to think through all those dynamics or whether you're part of a you know, Fortune 500 company and you have a whole bunch of you know, massive marketing team behind this, it does take time and energy to understand how is a customer thinking about their business. Now what opportunity do we have to, principle, in a principled way, kind of poke them in the eye in a way that uniquely will lead back to others? That's the trick. So this is one, if I'm hearing you correctly, then salespeople shouldn't be doing. This has got to come from sales enablement. This has got to come from marketing. This has got to come from the organization. Can I really expect a salesperson to go out there and start figuring out what this is? It's it, What we find in our experience working with members through this, um, we've, we've helped them construct these commercial insights that reframe the way customers think, is it's really tough for an individual, any individual, um, certainly much less a sales rep, right, to, to go and create these on their own. What we find is that the best mix of folks is often um, a sales enablement person, uh, a product marketer, often a product manager or someone who yeah. knows product well, um, field marketers, um, certainly like, you know, uh, your star uh, sales managers who are very close to the way that customers think and sort of the, un, the unarticulated or unvoiced assumptions and beliefs that sit behind what customers say, you need that combination of What about your customer success managers, those people who have to deal with the customers post-sale, the ones who sure. live with the solution that's been put in, right? Yeah, depending, yep. depending on your business model, absolutely, Keenan. You, you, you want folks in that meeting who know the way that customers think and have the thoughts, assumptions, and beliefs they have a good grasp on that in terms of what their what their customers think, believe, and assume. Now, now one thing I will add, Keenan, because I know I know there's going to be a lot of folks that have either small businesses, uh, entrepreneurs on the line, or you know, I am the president and I am the only salesperson and I am the marketing department, right, all in one. Uh, and, and so I think I think absolutely where the resources are present to get that level of customer customer understanding, 
by all means. In some cases, you just don't have the resources, right? Um, and I think the book does a good job of giving you essentially a playbook to think about, you know, what, well, at least how can I think about the customer? And I would encourage anybody, irrespective of whether you work for a Fortune 500 company and have all the resources in the world, or you're a small business owner, go out and sit down with your customer and say, hey, I know this is the objective you're after. How do you do that? How are you thinking about getting to that objective? And just that act of talking to them, getting that list of, you know, here's the 10 things I'm thinking about, asking, asking them why. Why are those things? Why, what are you doing and why are those things, you know, the, 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 the initiatives you've called against it? And it opens up just that, this whole surface train of areas where you can say, okay, here's 80% of what they're doing, which I think is fine. I think that's right. But 20%, man, 20%, everybody says these things. I just don't agree with that. That's my opportunity to then dig in and say, say can I create an insight that attacks that 20% where I just know customers aren't doing this right. I just know they are. Uh, and so that simple process, that simple act of going through and just listening to the customer first, then picking your battle and going in and then justifying a new point of view. And, and get some data. Please, people, get some data to prove that out. Uh, don't just make it conjecture. Um, but for some small businesses, it might start there. Uh, but over time, you've got to put some data behind it. But but. Ideally, yeah, Pat's got the right approach there. All right, so there's your good segue then. So, so now that I have all this, right, that's where tailoring comes in, is it not? Tailoring your message? Tailoring? Is that? So talk hey. to sort of tailoring. What, what is tailoring and why is it so important? Pat, you want that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll, ta I'll take a first one and then, then chip in. So um, tailoring uh, uh, super important here, and, I, and we make a point in this book that is, I would say, a refinement on the way that we talked about tailoring in the challenger sale, uh, 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 the first book, and and that is that given the the uh, the buying dynamics of the business group, like the buying group, right, the 5.4 stakeholders, what we got to be thinking about is tailoring our approach to the areas where that group could come together around a consensus point, because there's actually a risk in doing tailoring to each individual in that buying group. So if we're a marketer creating content or a sales rep engaging each of those individual buying group stakeholders, the 5.4, and, and, and sort of speaking specifically kind of in their language to their specific objectives, to the metrics, to the means that they have available to, to achieve what they want to achieve, we're actually potentially risking doing nothing to bring that group together. We might even be driving them apart. Yeah. So this is a special works, tailoring. Right? We've got to tailor to, the, to that buying group as a collective whole. Um, there's a great, I think, bumper sticker line in here, which is to say that um, if you, a, a collection of individual yeses is not the same as a collective yes. You could get every one of those individual 5.4 stakeholders to say, yes, I see the value of your solution, and the subtext is for me. But they may not then, at the end of the day, agree that, oh, yeah, for us as a group collectively, this is the way to go. They might actually be, have very different views of that. So, okay, so that. How do you do that? That sounds like a big deal. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, how the hell do I come up with a, a message that spans IT, marketing, legal, sales? They all, how do you do that? Like, they all have their different desires and goals. That doesn't seem like a small order. What we find is that in the, the if if you go about creating those commercial insights uh, in a systematic way, you can find. Uh, consensus points on which to build those reframing commercial insights and that 
all of those stakeholders can sort of rally around, so to speak. So that's step one, is design your commercial insights in a deliberate way to account for the 5.4. Step two is you can do a whole lot to equip that mobilizer to now go and have the conversations with those other stakeholders in their terms around that central rallying point. So in the book, we make a big deal out of uh, marketers should be spending a whole lot more time creating what we call mobilizer toolkits. Basically, the toolkit you would give to a mobilizer, maybe before your sales rep is involved, so that that mobilizer can have the confidence and know precisely how to engage the other 5.4 to bring them together around that central rallying point. Okay. All right. So, Keenan, I was going yes, to add okay. one, you know, and one thought just just to to add to to Pat's um, to Pat's guidance there is. Uh, we found this really interesting data point, and it wasn't something we were actually looking for, um, but we found that, <laughs> kind of threw us for a loop, in fact, we found that when customers debate internally, turns out that's one of the very best things they can do. And it, it was kind of confusing to us because you think of debating as like a sign of, of dysfunction, that the customer's not getting along well, but it turns out when the customer debates a lot, what they're doing is they're expressing what each one of them thinks and then understanding what the others think. And while that, that sounds obvious and simple, what it's doing is it actually brings the group together. And, and so we call this idea collective learning because, you know, as I adjust my glasses, right, we're a bunch of research geeks that give really difficult names to simple concepts. But this <laughs> act of getting the customer to go and debate productively, not unproductively, right, not calling each other names, but to debate about what's happening inside their business, turns out that's one of the most important things you can do and so what we're finding leading salespeople doing is, is creating those moments saying, hey, mobilizer, I need you to kind of come in and stir the pot a little bit in this regard because it turns out in other customers that look just like you and are at this stage in a purchase, here's where things are going to get off, off the track because not everybody's on the same page. So I want you to go in and kind of provoke your peers internally and have this debate. And I think you guys are going to find it really productive. By the way, I'm happy to help you and I'm happy to bring some material that will be useful to that. But even if I can't be there, you've got to go do this because right now your buying group is going to do this versus doing this. That debate's going to bring them together. So it's, it's again, another kind of counterintuitive thing we saw in the data, but debate's actually a good thing. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I'm envisioning myself, one of my clients or customers were back in the day when I ran sales teams, and I'm thinking, okay, this is all great shit, but I'm, ex I'm an executor, right? One of my favorite books in the world is execution. We've got to get this shit done, right? And there's a lot of pieces to this, right? There's the marketing piece, there's the sales piece. One could argue that there's the individual salesperson, there's the individual marketing person, there's the creation of the insights. I mean, there's all of this. Is there a recommended structure, methodology, approach, strategy, I don't care what you want to use, that companies can apply to actually build a repeatable, functional, efficient customer, a ch customer challenger customer model to actually execute on this? Pat, you want that one? Go sure, ahead. I'll, I'll take it. it we, we, we've the answer is yes. We've helped companies put that model into place. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for the simple silver bullet, it looks like this for everybody. That doesn't exist, right? Because all of the businesses, uh, these business models are very different. Um, who your customers are, um, how they buy, the how varied they are, can change the way that that model might actually look. But there are some common threads, I would say, to those models. So number one, it's about installing a capability to be able to generate those commercial insights that are going to enable you to consistently create those insights 
and then turn them into content to engage those customers in that 57% when they're learning on their own, right? The, the mobilizer dog whistle, right? Attract mobilizers. Um, and, uh, and into sales enablement tools. Um, and then, you know, a certain kind of sales training to help get your non-challenger sales reps to a spot where they feel comfortable um, engaging in challenger-like behaviors. So there, there's some common threads to the models, but the models themselves, the details of them, can be pretty different depending on the kind of business and business model. Nick, what would you add? Yeah, and Keenan, I, I, I think Pat's, Pat's absolutely right at, at kind of the, the enterprise level. The thing I would add is, is look, if you're a sales manager and you're, you're listening today and you're saying, what can I do with my team tomorrow? You know, I would say start thinking through really tactical ways to bring this to life. So one of the best is in deal reviews, start asking, who's your mobilizer? How do you know? Right, super simple. And by the way, who's your talker? Now here's what's really interesting is, is we found about a third of senior decision makers are talkers, a third of them are blockers, and a third of them are mobilizers. So don't just assume because I got a senior person, I've got the right person. In many cases, mobilizers aren't the senior person. And in many cases, talkers are the senior person. A senior person talker is the reason a deal will get forecast for 20 weeks on end and never come in because that person can't and won't compel consensus. Um, so that, I would say, is one of the most critical takeaways is just start talking in these, this language. Who's your mobilizer? How do you know? Prove it to me. What they do for you? How did they engage with you? Okay, great. Now, now we're at least starting to use the language and using some of the ideas here. Um, beyond that, I do think the idea of insights, it's harder. It just it flat out is to create insights, to build insights. But I think the reality is, if you look at the alternative, the alternative is, is you show up and hope that your technical specifications are just that much better and the customer is going to pay you for them. The reality is we know they won't. They will say, look, I'll take your 98% uptime, but all I need is 96%. So the other guys are just as good. So we're going to take their 10% cheaper solution because it's 96%. That's all I need. If you're willing to come down 10%, I'll take your 98% uptime. I'll take it, but you've got to come down to price. And that's, that, that is a losing proposition for all of us. And that's the alternative. It's, look, you're competing on price, and you're hopeful that your product is just that much better, which most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not that much better. The customer's never going to know those, those small nuances that matter so much. You got to teach them to care about it. You got to teach them why 98% is so required, not 96% uptime. Yes. And all the insight, you, you know, yes. you're 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 up you're up S Creek without a paddle, right? So, um, th th those are really the two ideas I would say at a very tactical level that 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 sales teams at least can take away immediately. All right, love it. All right, I got a question. We got a question from Phil Keen. Phil, brother, thanks for watching, my man. He's been tweeting like crazy. And by the way, anybody that has not listened to this, they have missed some solid, solid stuff. So you guys are doing great work. Okay, so here's this question. Um, is there really a point in today's sale that marketing lets go? When, if ever, do they let sales take over the sale completely? How involved are they? Uh, they navigate through the accounts to close. I'm not exactly sure what he's asking that. How involved are they, in, or should they be, when they drive an account to close? But... Uh, so I think what he's asking here is, is the place where marketing needs to get out of the way, or how involved should they be? So, you know, the classic model would be that there's some point in the, where a lead is determined sales ready, and the, the ball gets tossed over the wall to sales, right? That's the classic model. And what all, all of our research suggests, and what the book suggests, is that um, you kind of need to flip that handoff a different, a different way entirely Marketing and sales need to collaborate in different ways across the entire purchase process. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so 
very early on, we talked before about the best sales reps actually engage their customers early to try to get very early, right, ahead of that 57%. We find that a lot of times you're using social networks to do that. But let's face it, a lot of sales reps left to their own devices maybe aren't going to do that exactly in the right way, right? We aren't all born with the right social etiquette here, certainly sales reps. And so um, marketing can do a whole lot to scale those early social engagement efforts, right, and make sure that the sales reps are well equipped for uh, those sorts of early social engagement efforts, um, and they're equipped to start to change the way that customers think, right? Um, another spot where they should be collaborating is on customer understanding. We talked before about the kind of team you'd like to have to create those commercial insights. It's not just marketing sitting in a room. Actually, we find that B2B marketers are often too far from the customer to be able to understand how a customer thinks, believes, and assumes about their business. You gotta have sales in there too. So even a customer understanding, sales and marketing need to be working together, right? And we find that that stretches across the purchase journey at a several key points where sales and marketing need to work together. Now, I would say at the end of the day, you're not gonna have a marketer, typically you wouldn't, right? Involved in the, the final RFP, delivery, negotiation, et cetera. So there is a point where, yeah, you're going to hand it off to a sales rep to take it the rest of the way. But boy, do we find that model of sales and marketing collaboration, it really needs to change based on all the insights from the book. Yeah. And Keenan, let me just quickly add that it's interesting because this idea of a commercial insight, it really becomes the common language that binds sales and marketing together. You know, we talk about marketing and sales collaboration all the time, and nobody really quite understands what's that, what that means. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is that an insight will take you, and we'll try to do it the opposite way for the camera here, um, but an insight takes you all the way through a purchase, right? Literally, in the beginning, you use an insight to differentiate yourself. At the end, you still have to reinforce that insight. There's all the objections and all the different, you know, uh, last-minute uh, 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 efforts to kind of derail the deal might come into place. So you still got to use that insight at the end, but if if you have different you know ROI calculators that help derive the value of that insight, in fact we call it rote calculators, return on pain eliminated, right? Trying to help the customer understand if we fix this, what type of return do we see on it? Marketing can help with that. And that, that those are used typically a little further in the sale. Um, diagnostics to bring different uh, stakeholders on board, where two or three people are like you know all about the deal. But there's still a couple other folks who aren't quite on board. Can we use a diagnostic that presents data in the customer's own terms, based on the customer's inputs, to bring everybody together? Marketing can create those. You know, again, based on the insight, um, all the way through other tools that you can use to help kind of uh, that mobilizer push the deal the final mile. Pat mentioned those mobilizer toolkits. Again, something marketing can build, arm sales to use it. But in that way, insight spans the entirety of that sales process and you got your sales and marketing team saying, hey, you know, here's what we need of each other um, around this idea of an insight and suddenly, you know, we're giving some definition to what, what we mean by that nebulous term, sales and marketing collaboration. It's all about the insight. That's the common language. So basically, if, if you're a CMO, you're head of sales, you're looking to do that, what you want to do is you want to ask yourself, where can I lay value across the entire sales process? And it's, not only, it's not only lay value, Keenan, it's, it's, it's where can we help the customer understand they're doing things the wrong way. But isn't that, no, value to the sales team. Yes. Not value to the customer. Yes. Value to the sales team. So if I want to stay in that sales cycle, then I've got to provide value. And, and what I'm hearing in your sense is in terms of insights at different stages that empower the salesperson to keep the customer engaged, to unteach them, right? Yeah to build consensus, to provide insights into why my features and functions provide that business type of value. So if, if my so as a marketing leader, that's what I want to do is look at that, 
that sales process and ask, where can I lay value to the sales team to keep them engaged? Yep, that's exactly right. Awesome. All right, all right. Well, gentlemen, each of you, give me a second, because uh, we're coming to the end. This was great. This was freaking fantastic. We're going to promote the shit out of this, because folks need to be listening to this. Um, each of you, give me uh, 30 seconds of something I missed that you think people should know. I usually, here, I got one. I'm going to flip the script on you guys big time. So let's see what your um, your improvisational skills are like, okay? I normally end the show with something called cut it out. And what I do is I identify something that salespeople do that they just got to stop. It's just hurting them and they keep doing it. It could be something entrenched in the old days or something that's just stupid. And I go on a rant. Sometimes I lose my shit. I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to give it to each of you based on all your research, your experience, challenge your customer, challenge your sale. I don't care. Your days in the field, each of you. Give me a cut it out for salespeople. Hey, salespeople, cut it out. What should they cut out? Nick, you go first. Uh, all right. I, I mean, this one is, is a bit of a combination of what we learned from Challenger Sale plus this book reinforces it. The simple, simple thing salespeople got to cut out is leading with their own product, leading with their own features, leading with their own benefits, and starting the conversation that way. You got to start the conversation with what's going on in the customer's business and what have they missed, what have they not understood that is materially important to the performance of their business and you got to go in and start to poke them in the eye around that. So stop the features and benefits, start talking about the customer's business, and help them improve their own business. Boom! I like that one. I always say no one gives a shit about your product or services. I always say that. No one does. Beautiful, Nick. Beautiful. All right, Patrick, you're up. What's your cut it out? Keenan, here's the cut it out. I'm going to give you one for marketers, all right? There's a huge fashion today for marketers to personalize their content. And our data suggests that if you're doing that, remember that 37% data point. That's the data point that suggests that at 37% of the way through the purchase, that's where that buying group has the greatest difficulty of achieving consensus. So if you're personalizing content to individuals at that point, you might actually be driving individuals in the buying group further apart right when you need them to be coming together. So I'm going I'm to say stop personalizing content to the individual to marketers out there. And then therefore personalize it to the consensus? You got it. Or to the collective? All right. Boom, boom. They have it. There's a cutout. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much. This was awesome. You guys were fantastic. You guys were actually kind of entertaining for sales nerds as self-proclaimed. Well done. <laughs> well done. Well that's, done. That's a huge compliment. Appreciate that backhanded compliment. That's great. You got it. You, <laughs> you, you, you freestyled well. You freestyled well. Um, all right, people, so listen, we're going to break here, but with that said, I want to let everybody know our next one coming up, which I really suck at, uh, April, I mean, October 7th, I believe, right, Kiki? You got it. So October, October 7th, you guys do not want to miss this, people. We are bringing on David Dunning. He is the author of the research called Unskilled and Unaware of It. His research has shown that as most of us think we're good and we suck. Not only do we suck, we don't even have the metacognition to understand that we suck, and we make it worse. So this is, has amazing ramifications on sales leadership. It has huge ramifications on our own ability to grow as an individual and outsell our competition, make it in life, be a top dog, be in a good relationship. So guys, people, you need to be here next October. I would say next week, two weeks from today, October 7th. October 7th, 8th, 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 sorry, peeps. October 8th, David, David Dunning from the Dunning-Kruger Effect, unskilled and unaware of it. You don't want to miss it. Uh, folks, leave your comments in 
the comments section here on YouTube. If you wanted to listen to us while we drive, check out the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Everybody give some mad love to Nick and Pat. They killed it. And if you have questions, you can hit them up on Twitter. Uh, Google let us down today, so their Twitter handles aren't up. But guys, what are your Twitter handles? Uh, mine's Nick underscore Toman, T-O-M-A-N, N-I-C-K underscore T-O-M-A-N. Perfect. And Patrick? You can find me on LinkedIn mainly, but I'll, I manage at C-E-B underscore marketing. All right. And we got to work on you on that Twitter. Come on, man. You need a social presence. You need to be blowing this up, baby. Uh, all right. So with that said, I think, Kiki, do we have anything else? Um, I did throw up a couple of links here. So if you're watching on YouTube or live in the showcase, you can bonus materials from the book, um, a way to purchase the book, the customer or the challenger customer, and it looks like tomorrow Nick and Brent Adamson, another author of the book, is going to be doing a Twitter chat at 12.30 Eastern tomorrow, so just search up hashtag challenger customer and, and you can get in on that as well. Perfect. Well done. Well done. So gentlemen, I thank you. You guys are the bomb. I enjoyed it. Let's make sure we connect sometime in person. Let's not make this the last time. You guys are good peeps. And Kiki, am I good to go? You're good to go, buddy. All right, y'all. Peace out. Till next time. Cheers. Thanks, guys. <laughs>